All right, so we're talking about the work of Christ tonight, and uh, this is a this is a huge, huge topic. We're actually gonna we're kind of splitting this between this week and next week. We're gonna touch on the tail end of it next week, and then put another topic into it as well for next week because there's just way too much to to cover in one evening. But um, here's what here are the three main things we're gonna talk about tonight. Um, the work of Christ is what Jesus accomplished for our salvation through his atoning life and death, bodily resurrection, and ascension. So the three things we're, we're going to really hone in on tonight are, are these. The atoning life and death. So we're going to talk about a concept called the atonement. We're going to talk about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus. So... Just a few very small little topics to discuss tonight. So uh, we're going to spend some time working through this together. So we'll, we'll take each of these uh, kind of one at a time tonight. We're going to talk about the atoning life and death. Now, most of the time when we talk about the atonement, we think about the death of Christ. Um, I want to hone in on the fact that it's, it's really his whole life and his death that makes him uh, the the sacrificial atonement that we need. So we're going to hone in on that. Now, last week, uh, we, we did talk about, not me, but you guys talked about um, the the person of Christ. And so the, the natures of Christ, his sinless perfection, right? we, we touched on that. So we're not going to hone in too much on the life of Christ as much as the death of Christ. But I want it to be understood, at least in, in this context, that all of Jesus's earthly life, and all the way through his death was atoning work. Um, and then we'll talk about his resurrection, and then we'll talk about his ascension, uh, which, in at least in our church and, and kind of our, our circle of Christianity, the ascension doesn't really get a lot of discussion. I know in other denominations it, it does, and that's good, and we probably need to rectify some of that because the, the ascension is a hugely important doctrine. So looking forward to talking through these things. Um, but let's, let's just, oh, there we go. Okay. Um, let's talk about the, the atoning life and death of Christ. Um, here's, what, here's what this means just on a very basic level. Um, when we talk about the atonement, we're talking about Christ living a sinless life and then, then dying as a substitute in the place of sinners. This is what theologians call, and the topic we're talking about is substitutionary atonement. So substitutionary is that concept of Christ standing in the place of you and me uh, as he lived and died, um, as he lived the perfect life that he lived. He lived that for us in our place. That's really good news because you and I can't live a perfect life. Um, We are, as we talked about two weeks ago, we are sinners uh, all the way through us, every part of us is affected by sin. There's no part of us that is righteous before God. So Jesus came into the world to live perfectly before the Father, uh, obeyed the law in perfection. Now, he didn't obey the law perfectly as it was understood by the Pharisees. They yelled at him a lot about breaking laws, but he wasn't actually breaking laws. He was just busting up their concepts of what the law required. He lived a perfect, sinless life, And then he stood as a substitute and he died on a cross as a substitute 
for us. So we're talking about substitutionary atonement. <clears throat> um, but obviously the substitutionary word is, we, we get that, right? We understand that. We all had substitute teachers when we were in school. We, we understand what a substitute is to some degree. What I want to hone in on, though, is the atonement side of this, because that's the word that we're probably not as familiar with or uh, quite grasp as much. So we're going to define this, and we're going to work through this. And this is a huge topic, so um, I'm going to do my best to just kind of hone it, bring it down, rather, to, to a basic level. But here's what this means fundamentally. Um, because of sin, atonement was what God provided for his people in order for them to not die, right? So sin causes death. We saw that two weeks ago. Sin requires us to die. God says, if you eat of that tree, you will die. We know we talked about this being physical death, spiritual death. Uh, you know, the whole world, in a sense, has, has died uh, in a, in a, and is dying, right? We, we know that that is the implication of sin, in a general sense. But sin also is uh, so deeply ingrained in us that we ourselves deserve to die because of sin. So God being gracious to his people and ultimately to us in Christ gave us a way to not die. He gave us the atonement. And the atonement was uh, first uh, brought out in the Old Testament sacrificial system where lambs and other animals were given up to die in the place of sinful people. So that sounds really harsh because what did those poor little animals do? Well, nothing. That's the point. That poor lamb, that goat, that, that pigeon, whatever you were able to afford to give to God in various sins required different levels of sacrifice. You, you read through Leviticus, some of you are doing that. We, I, in my Bible reading plan, I just finished Leviticus. Glory, hallelujah, right? It's, <laughs> get through it. But you, you see all of these things that God requires, uh, depending on what the, what the crime was or the, the punishment or the sin was, it had a different punishment. But an innocent animal had to stand in the place of sinners, um, and so, so that's how God prepares us for Christ. But the Old Testament gives us that system. And the, the culmination of that system was on a particular day of the year. It was the Day of Atonement. There was one day in the calendar year of the Israelites in the Old Testament era where they would sacrifice uh, an animal for the whole nation. So there were individual sacrifices happening as people would commit sins um, or got leprosy and had to be removed from the camp and then present an offering to come back into the camp. And there were all of these requirements. And the requirements were there because they display the holiness and perfection of God and they display how we don't meet those perfections. So that's why there's that seems really crazy and harsh to us in, in our modern era, but that's because we have the luxury of living um, this side of Christ. And so we're, we're blessed in that regard. But, but the, the day of atonement was the day that, that the people of Israel as a nation were given a clean slate and their sins were, were covered. And it's found in Leviticus chapter 16. And so I'm just going to read a very short section of this 
basically just gives the, the summation of what happened on the Day of Atonement. Uh, starting in verse 6, it says Aaron, Aaron and his children were uh, the priesthood. They were the ones that were responsible for conducting these, uh, these sacrifices. They were the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Um, Aaron was the head of that when he was alive, and then his sons um, carried on, and a couple of his sons uh, were killed because of doing things wrong, and uh, I just read all that, so it's fresh in my mind, right? But, uh, but so Aaron's, Aaron's here, and here's what Moses, through the Lord, is uh, saying. Uh, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then, so notice first that the priest was not exempt from this. In order to even be in a place where he could do a further sacrifice for the nation, he had to atone for his own sins and the sins of his household. So that's going to be, we're going to talk, touch on this uh, as we get to the book of Hebrews and see how Christ fulfills all these things in, in a unique way. But so Aaron sacrifices a bull for himself to make atonement. There's that word, atonement for himself, for his house. Then he shall take the two goats, two goats, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the Lord, uh, on which excuse me, the lot fell for Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, Azazel, we have no idea really what this is. There's some speculation. There's some different theories. Um, it was obviously a wilderness, and it was called Azazel. Um, but, but really, there's, that's not really the point, so I'm not going to hone in on it. But, but basically, what you're seeing is two, two goats. I don't know. He cast lots. So let's think of, in our modern terms, he flips a coin. And the, the coin that you know, his heads, well, that one gets to die, the other one gets to live. So it's kind of like, well, here you go. You got a 50-50 chance goat of, of surviving. The goat that uh, is presented to the Lord is sacrificed for sin. And the other goat is set free into the wilderness. <clears throat> um, so here's what's happening there. This is showing us that there is a sacrifice for sin, and then there's a scapegoat. That's what that word scapegoat comes from, is this idea of the goat that gets to go out into the wilderness. They're just, it's removed from the camp. The sacrifice dies in the place of sinners as atonement for the sins of the people. But the scapegoat represents that the people's sins are removed from them. So as that goat is sent off, chased away from the camp, it's symbolizing that the sins of the people are not just paid for uh, in, in this bl blood sacrifice, but they are actually removed and cast out. And so those two realities are going to come back into play as we look at, at Christ and his sacrifice. Um, 
but so here's a, here's a this is a little bit a little bit wordy, but <clears throat> it comes from uh, the ESV Study Bible notes. I think um, he says atonement is <clears throat> the making of enemies into friends by averting the punishment that their sin would otherwise incur. Sinners in rebellion against God need a representative to offer sacrifice on their behalf. That would be the priest in the Levitical system. uh, If they are to be reconciled to God. Jesus' righteous life and atoning death on behalf of sinners is the only way for fallen man to be restored into right relationship with the holy God. So that's kind of the big picture summary of what atonement is. It is turning enemies into friends. Uh, the, this punishment that we deserve has been taken away from us because Christ was sacrificed for sin, for our sin, um, and w- was essentially functionally the sacrifice and the scapegoat uh, for us to have our sins removed from us. And that, in doing that, he restores us to a right relationship with God. So that's the big picture of the atonement, the overview. But let's work through this a little bit more. Let, let's talk first about the need for this. Okay, we've already sort of touched on it. Um, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. Just one quick slide. Simply put, the doctrine of sin is why the atonement is needed. We're sinners. We've earned the the justice and wrath of God because of sin. So why do we need an atonement? Why is it needed? Because we're sinners. And sinners can't stand in a right relationship with a holy God on their own, not without a mediator, not without someone who who can cover those sins and make us right and whole. So that's the need for it. But what's the cause of it? Why, why did the atonement happen ultimately? What caused God to do this? Well, the ultimate cause that led Christ to come to earth and die for sin was the love and justice of God rooted in his nature. His love and justice. These are not opposing concepts of God's character. We talked about this four or five weeks ago when we talked about the attributes of God. God is love and God is justice. And both of these things are true in him perfectly. Um, And so we need justice for wrongdoing and sin. That has to be met for God to be good and right and just. But God could have just gotten justice by killing all of us and being done with it. And that would have been just because it was, it's deserved. But because he loves us, he chose to do it differently, thankfully. He chose to bring us an atonement. Uh, even though we deserved justice, he gave us in love redemption. And so you can see those concepts in a couple places. Uh, John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world. He loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. We, we see the love of God as the motivator uh, of why he sent his son Jesus into the world 
to be given as a gift of redemption and atonement for us. We also see this in Romans 3, 25 and 26. Let me go there and read that for us. Um, Romans 3. Yep. Is that what I said? Yeah. Um, Here's what that says here. It says, um, well, we'll start in verse 23, actually. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And we're going to talk about propitiation quite a bit tonight, so hang on to that. Okay, that's a, that's a fancy word, but... We'll get there. Now, here's why. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness or his justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. So there's the justice of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So God sent Christ into the world to be our propitiation. We'll talk about what that word means in a second. Um, But he's doing this to show his righteousness, to show his justice, and that he might ultimately be just and the justifier. So he simultaneously in the death of Christ can be just and deal with sin and do what's right against wrong and be the one who justifies sinners. It's an amazing thing. So those those two realities, the, the love of God and the justice of God rooted in his very nature, this is why he caused the atonement. Let's talk about the necessity of the atonement. So here's a question. Was there any other way for God to save sinful people other than by sending his son to die in our place? Was there any other way? That's, that's the question. And there's three passages that we're going to look at. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 39, Luke 24, 27, and Hebrews 2, 17. Um, so I'm going to flip here for a second and get there. Um, Matthew 26, 39. I can find it. There it is. Um, He says, um, and going a little farther, this is while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So, Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, before he's arrested and tried uh, before the the Jewish leaders and, and delivered over to Pilate. He's praying and he asks God the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So obviously the answer is not direct in this passage, but the implication is God always answers the prayers of Jesus because he's God. 
And if God did not answer this prayer and pass this cup from Jesus, it wasn't possible. If it's possible, let the cup pass from me. The cup didn't pass from him. He still went to the cross. There was no other way. There was no other way for for sinners to be justified before God, made right with God, except through the death of Christ. We see in, in Luke 24, 27, this is after his resurrection. Spoiler alert, Jesus rises from the dead if you didn't know that. Um, you should by now, right? But Luke 24, 27. <clears throat> uh, let's see. That's not the right one. Oh, it's 26. I'm sorry. Typo there. Um, he's, he's speaking to a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus here. And they don't recognize him. They, they were actually uh, kept from recognizing him uh, in this moment. They, for some reason, they didn't recognize him. And he's talking to them. They're discouraged because they believe Jesus is still dead. And we'll start in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now here's the key. 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So he's asking a a rhetorical question. Was it not necessary that Christ suffered these things? The the answer is, of course it was necessary. That's the point. He's he's getting them to understand the necessity of the atonement. I don't know what's going on with that. Let Let me try to reset this real quick here. I'm not sure why that's being weird, but all right, see if that helps. Okay, so there's that. Now, Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 17, at least I think, unless I mistyped that one too, but we'll see. Um, So, yeah. Uh, Therefore... He, Jesus, here's the key word, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of of God to make propitiation, there's that word again, for the sins of the people. So in order to to, to be the appropriate high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning he had to enter into our world. He had to become a man and live a perfect life and die in the place of sinners in order for us to be right with him. There's no other way. He had to do this. So just those three uh, examples of this. The necessity of the atonement is, is vital, that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. He's the only way. And this is the theme all throughout the whole, the whole Bible, really, but the whole New Testament, Paul's letters, he's honing in on this reality that we cannot be saved because of our good works, our efforts, our morality, or anything else that we may bring. And we can't, as Hebrews teaches us, we'll, we'll see some of this. The book of Hebrews even teaches us that we can't even be saved and made right through the sacrificial system. That was just a band-aid 
in a season of time that couldn't truly take away sins. Only Christ could truly take away sins. So that's the necessity of it all. Now, let's talk here about the nature of the atonement. What, what, what is the atonement like? What is it? How, how does it function? So there's two basic primary aspects of Christ's work that we'll talk about tonight. Um, we'll talk about Christ's obedience for us, and then we'll talk about Christ's sufferings for us. Uh, we'll, we'll do the first one rather quickly. Christ's obedience for us um, is in theological circles referred to as his active obedience. So what we mean by that is that Christ lived a perfect life in obedience to God. Oh man, that's frustrating me. Um, in order to uh, earn the righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his obedience would be counted for us. So he had to live this perfect life in order that his perfection would be counted for us. That's, that's his active obedience, his active obedience. Um, so basically Jesus from infancy all the way through to his crucifixion and resurrection never sinned. He, he lived absolutely perfectly uh, throughout his life actively. There's a few passages here uh, that we could look at here. Um, Philippians 3 is the passage where Paul says that he has a righteousness not of his own, but that which comes through Christ, faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, uh, 19. I'll read this one for us. Um, let's see. Um, it says here that for by one man's disobedience, that's Adam we're talking about, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So there you're seeing Paul, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in our topic on sin. We, we talked about how Adam's sin becomes our sin because of our inherited sin nature through him. And so here is, we, we did read this verse a couple weeks ago, but it, it, we're honing in on this. The obedience of Jesus makes many righteous. His, his obedience does that because he, his obedience is counted as ours. Um, I think in, in the gospel narratives, the clearest passage about this is Matthew chapter four, um, where Jesus goes after his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes to him at the end of that time and basically gives him um, three temptations uh, that Jesus Christ does not succumb to, overcomes, um, and, and ultimately proves himself in that moment to be a different kind of man than Adam was. Adam failed a test after one act of temptation when he was in a garden full of plenty and everything he could want and he still succumbed to temptation. Christ, this is all, this is intentional. He's not in a garden. He's in a desert, starving, 
and is given three separate occasions to disobey the father and he withstands under the weight of it as the perfect man that he was. So that, uh, again, you can read all that on, on your own. That's an amazing story and um, one that's worth looking at. But, but this is the, this is, these are highlighting the perfect obedience that Jesus lived. Um, his suffering uh, is the other side of this coin. So his obedience is one side. His suffering is the other. His suffering is referred to in theological circles as his passive obedience. Uh, I don't really necessarily know if I like that, that term because um, it kind of just that word passive just kind of assumes like, oh, he was just like casually hanging out, you know, dying on a cross. Like I, I don't exactly understand the, the fullness of that, that terminology, but that's what theologians refer to it as. Um, we're not going to really hone in too much on that. But here's what, we're, here's what we're talking about in the suffering of Christ. Um, he suffered through his whole life in a broad sense. He, he suffered from beginning to end. Isaiah 53 says that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, Hebrews 5 tells us that he, that he suffered with his brothers. And, and so we see that he suffered all throughout his life. It wasn't just in, that, in those few hours of crucifixion. It was a, it was a lifetime of suffering. Uh, I think we can get a glimpse of that in the, in the story of, of his temptation. He lived 40 days and 40 nights without food and then was tempted by the devil. That's, that's suffering. He was abandoned by his friends at his highest moment of need. He uh, was basically accused of being a crazy person by his brothers um, as he was doing his public ministry. Uh, there, there was a lot of suffering that happened to, to Jesus all throughout his life. But when we talk about the suffering as it relates to the atonement, we're not speaking just about that. We're, we're speaking very specifically about his suffering and death on the cross. So let, let's just walk through that in just a few minutes here. On the cross, Jesus, of course, we understand this. He suffered physical pain. Um, Mark 15, 24 is, is a verse that simply says, and they crucified him. Now, we are kind of removed from the world that Mark and the other gospel writers were writing to originally. And so maybe the gravity of that statement is lost on us a little bit. But crucifixion was the most horrific way one could die physically. Um, it, it, was, it was not a, well, you're going to be put to sleep with this chemical-induced coma, and then we're going to put some stuff in you, and you're just not going to wake up. It was agonizing. And actually, the word agonizing comes from the word, uh, in, I believe it's in Greek, for, uh, for the crucifixion. Like that's how we get this word agony uh, in, in English. It, it derives from that word um, to, to describe the crucifixion. It was one of great physical pain. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails before he was crucified. Cat of nine tails was an instrument that the Romans used. It was nine cords of leather um, that had at the end of them uh, fragments of 
bone and rock and whatever other terrible sharp things they could find. And they're whipping his back and tearing flesh off of it, losing massive amounts of blood even before he goes to be hung on the cross. The cross itself, he was nailed to the cross. If you've ever uh, stabbed yourself with a nail or any, any sharp object, it hurts. Now imagine someone driving that through your entire arm and your legs um, and, and literally nailing you to a piece of wood, propping you up on it. Um, but the way that the, the cross ultimately killed you was through asphyxiation. You, you died basically by drowning in your own, in your own fluids. Um, and so you had to lift yourself up by the feet that were nailed to the cross to take a breath. And eventually you just lost the physical strength to do that and, and you died of asphyxiation. Jesus died that way. Like it is horrendous and terrible. And there, there's been some medical journals out that, that you, quite some time ago that uh, medical... A doctor wrote a medical journal about the the physical suffering of crucifixion, and it's just really um, hard for us, I think, to even wrap our heads around it because of the way that we live in such a sterilized environment. But the people of Jesus's day and the people in the first century, when they would have read and they crucified him, that's come into their mind. They understand that intuitively because they would have witnessed it. Um, the Romans used it as a way to kill people who were particularly troublesome, like the insurrectionists, um, anybody who was kind of trying to stir up a rebellion or, or a crowd. That's, that's the kind of punishment that they would get, which is why the, the Jewish leaders used the angle that Jesus was trying to be the king of the Jews to get Rome to crucify him. Because if they could convince Pilate that this guy was trying to start an insurrection against Rome as the king of the Jews, then, then, they, would have, then they would kill him to, to get rid of the threat. So, so that was the whole issue there. But there's the physical pain of the cross. You can read in John 19 the whole narrative of, of how that happens. But beyond the physical pain, there's the pain of bearing sin that Jesus endured. This is different than, than just you or I dying in a painful way. Like it would be terrible to die in a painful way for any of us. But Jesus compounds that all the more because he bore the weight and the spiritual depravity of sin in himself. Isaiah 53 says that he himself bore our sins in his body. John 1.29 tells us that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. So John is connecting this Levitical uh, sacrificial system to the work of Christ. And from the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist declares him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which means that the sins of the world are placed upon Jesus at the cross. Second Corinthians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus knew no sin, but on the cross became sin, took upon himself all of our sin, so that you and I would become the righteousness of God in him.
First Peter 2 talks about Jesus bearing our sins upon himself as well. So though all those, you can read those as, as you feel led at some point, but you can write those down. So he experiences the pain of bearing sin, not just the physical pain, although that was real and genuine. There was the pain of sin born again on his body. He also experiences the pain of abandonment. Um, this is not just abandonment from his friends, although that's true. At his, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane preparing for his crucifixion, these bozos that are following him around can't stay awake even to pray for him. He has to keep waking them up and being like, hey, you guys going to pray or what? And they, they just keep falling asleep. And, uh, and then when the, the soldiers come to arrest him, um, you had that one moment where Peter was ready to just take that dude's head right off and he missed and got his ear off and Jesus heals the man's ear and tells Peter to quit it. Um, but aside from that one act, like these dudes all fled. They ran, they ran for their lives. And Peter eventually denied three times that he even knew Jesus. None of that surprised Jesus. He told them well in advance that this would happen to him and that they would do this. But it's still painful for his best friends on earth to do this. And then above and beyond that, all the more significantly than that, you have the abandonment in a sense of God the Father towards his son as Christ bears the weight of guilt and sin Jesus declares, quoting the the book of Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't fully understand all that that means. I don't know that anybody fully understands the the totality of that statement. Um, But I think what we can at least take away from that is that in some way that's probably unexplainable, God the Father turned his back on his son in that moment of, of crucifixion. How that happens, I don't know. But, but Jesus declares that God forsook him, had forsaken him on the cross. So we're taking him at his word. He, he said it, he meant it. And I don't know exactly how all that works, but, but it happened. He was abandoned, not just by his earthly friends, but by his heavenly father. We also see that Jesus um, bore upon himself the very wrath of God. So wrath is intense, hot anger towards something that is wrong. And in God's case, his wrath is always just. It's always right because there's no wrong in him. He's perfect justice. But, But God rightly hates sin. We talked about that two weeks ago. He hates sin, and he justly does. But what this means is that if Jesus takes upon himself our sins, then all of God's hatred for sin has to be directed somewhere, and it's upon Christ. This is the the concept of propitiation. We've read it already in a couple places, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, It's also mentioned in 1 John 2, verse 2. But here's what propitiation means. This is, again, not a word we throw around a lot in our day-to-day lives, but it means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, 
and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us into favor. I think that quotes from uh, Wayne Grudem. So the sacrifice that Jesus made for us takes all of God's wrath, all of his righteous anger at sin and sinners like you and me are placed upon Jesus. But it's um, ultimate dealing with, ultimately dealing with the wrath of God so that it actually changes how God looks at us. God does not look at us with wrath anymore if we're in Christ. He looks at us with favor and grace. Why? Because Jesus took God's wrath to the very end of that wrath. So all of our sin, every ounce of sin, if, if sin can be measured in ounces, I don't think it can, but if you measure out all, every drop of sin in your body and mine, in our soul and uh, in our minds and every part of us, every bit of sin as we trust in Jesus was given to him to take the wrath that our sin deserves. And so God's demeanor changes towards us because of that. God no longer looks at you and me and sees us as objects of wrath. He looks at you and me. If we're in Christ, that's the caveat here. If we're in Christ, he looks at us with favor, grace, mercy, because Jesus was our propitiation. So those are the the nature... Uh, that's that's the nature of the atonement. It is um, propitiation. It is uh, taking pain uh, upon Jesus so that we can stand in a right relationship with God. Okay, so now let's talk through what are the aspects of the atonement. Um, well, first we need to recognize, we're just going to roll through a few of these. Um, we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. But because of the atonement, Christ sacrificed himself and died for us. Hebrews 9.26. Actually, let's turn to Hebrews 9. Uh, just, I want to spend a little time there. I can't see too far ahead in my notes, so I hope I'm not jumping the gun, but I don't, I don't think I am. Um, if you turn over to Hebrews 9... And, and we'll look at a little bit of 10. I, I want to show you how the writer of Hebrews connects the issue of um, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament to its fulfillment in Jesus. It's pretty fascinating. Um, if you actually start, we won't start in verse 26. We'll get there. Um, but no, actually, I think we can. We can start in that same paragraph at least. Um, we'll start in verse 23. He, it says this. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually start in verse 22 because, you know, I just got to keep backing up. So he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, so under the law... Before Christ, outside of Christ, everything was purified or made right with God by, by blood, by the sacrificial system, by the animals being killed. 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. Did you catch that? Jesus is not repeatedly doing this like the priests of the Levitical system had to. Right? The, the Levites, the, the tribe of Aaron here, they had to sacrifice an animal that wasn't their own blood. It was an, an animal's blood that they had to sacrifice to purify themselves. And then they'd go year after year to do the Day of Atonement. Jesus isn't doing that. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Um, he, he's not doing this repeatedly as the high priest does every year. That's a reference to the Day of Atonement. Because, verse 26, because then he would have, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So chapter 10 is an amazing chapter too. We won't get into it, I don't think, too much tonight. But just think about that paragraph. That so you you guys know I, I don't like to tear down too many other perspectives. So I'm trying to be pretty positive, but I, I do want to point this out. Um, the Roman Catholic theology is actually contradictory to this because at the Mass, what they believe happens is Jesus is sacrificed again every Sunday or every time the Mass is performed. That's a theological position they have. Now, I know a lot of you come from Catholic backgrounds. I love, we love you, uh, right? No, no issues. But, but this, this is something that we need to reckon with is that the Bible says Jesus died once for all. Once for all. There is no need to repeat this sacrificial death of Christ. So that's just a theological issue there um, that I wanted to point out. But that's what the implication of this passage is, that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself and died for us once for all. There was a one-time sacrifice. The reason it was one time is because it was perfect. It didn't need to be replicated. It didn't need to be done again because Jesus was the true and full sacrifice. Another aspect, we'll keep moving on here. Another aspect of the atonement is that we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We've talked about this a little bit already. We deserve the wrath of God, but here's, the, here's what the atonement does for us. Christ was the propitiation for sins 
to remove God's wrath from us. 1 John 4.10 talks about that. So I'm just trying to show you the contrast between what we deserve or what we are outside of Christ and then what Christ does to accomplish our atonement. So we deserve God's wrath, but Christ was the propitiation for sin to take that wrath away. Thirdly, we see that we are separated from God because of our sin. But the good news of the atonement is that Christ died to reconcile us to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 talks about the ministry of reconciliation that Christ reconciles us to God by the blood of Jesus and then makes us agents of reconciliation for others. But we are separated from God, so what we need is a reconciliation, and Christ is that for us. We also see that we are in bondage or slavery to sin. But here's what Christ did. He became our redeemer to purchase our freedom. So the word redeemer comes from, um, it's, a, it's a word in, in the original language that talks about purchasing back a, a, a purchasing the freedom of a slave. So uh, slavery in the Roman world when Paul was writing was different than slavery in the American context. Um, but basically if somebody owed a debt, they had to be enslaved or an indentured servant um, to pay off that debt. Um, and sometimes people were born into slavery because of the poverty of their parents. And it was a complicated situation. It wasn't a one-size-fit-all thing. But generally speaking, slavery was, was, not, it was not racially motivated like, like slavery as we think of it. It, it wasn't lifelong um, as we think of it. It was really meant to pay off a debt, deal with uh, something that you couldn't deal with on your own. So you had to go to work for somebody. And yes, you didn't like it and didn't want to be there. And maybe your master treated you poorly and all that's true. But redemption was a concept that came out of if somebody was particularly gracious, or maybe you had a rich uncle who finally showed up and paid for your debt to be paid to free you from that slavery, that bondage. Well, that's the concept but what Christ is, is ultimately freeing us from our slavery to sin. And he purchases our freedom on the, on the cross as he takes that payment for sin upon himself. We see this in Colossians 1.13, where we're seeing that God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a transfer that happens at the cross for us. Um, here's a, here's a say um, a, a chart. Um, some of you like you know these kind of things a little bit better, but these are basically the concepts that we walk through. Um, it, it talks about all the different languages, language issues uh, of atonement, the words that the Bible uses to describe it, what our need is, and what the result is. Right. So just an example. The language is of Old Testament sacrifice, so they're going to use words like blood, lamb, sacrifice. The problem is that we're guilty, and the and the result of Christ's redemption, uh, excuse me, his atonement is our is our forgiveness. Uh, you could look at the language of the law court. The, the word the Bible uses is justification. The problem is that we're condemned rightly before God, but in Christ we're pardoned and counted as righteous. That's what justification means. 
So uh, this is, again, from the ESV Study Bible. There's some, there's some great resources in that. Um, but it says basically that throughout church history, uh, various aspects of the atonement have garnered particular attention. So, for instance, different times theologians have stressed the ransom imagery um, or the, the selfless example of Christ as Christ dies on the cross as our example, uh, the victory of Christ over evil. But all, these, all these aspects of the atonement are true as far as they go. They have uh, important insights to teach us. But here's, here's where I want to land. The, the crux of the issue of the atonement of Christ is that Jesus took the place of sinners, substitutionary atonement. He takes our place, endures the wrath of God as our substitute. That is the, the heart of the atonement. There are factors of the atonement that we can learn from, like Christus Victor, that Christ is victorious over sin and Satan. That's true. Christ accomplished that on the cross. Uh, the, the other uh, Christus exemplar is the Latin for Christ is our example. That's true. Christ is our example of sacrificial love. We can learn from Christ's example. The Bible teaches us that all the time. Those things are true and right, but they're not the heart of atonement. The heart of the atonement is the substitutionary atonement where Christ takes the penalty that we've earned, takes that penalty upon himself and gives us his righteousness. So uh, that's, that's the overview of the atonement. Are there any questions uh, that you guys want to talk through on that before we move on to the resurrection? Well, let's keep rolling through. Um, we've got a couple more topics to talk about. We, these won't be as lengthy, um, so hopefully in the next 25 minutes or so we can, we can wrap this up. We'll see. Um, let's talk about the second part of the work of Christ that we're focusing on tonight. So we talked about the atonement of Christ. Now we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection. And I, I specify the bodily resurrection of Jesus because there's theological perspectives out there that are unbiblical and wrong that would say Christ didn't rise bodily. It's, this is metaphorical or this is spiritual or something like that. But we're going to see very clearly in the New Testament here that Christ's resurrection was not just a spiritual resurrection. It was not just a metaphor. It was not a metaphorical resurrection at all. It was a literal bodily resurrection. Um, so the New Testament teaches this um, that Christ rise, rose from the dead, um, and it's actually recorded specifically in all four gospel accounts. So you have Matthew's, Mark, Luke's, and John's. Um, only two of those four talk about Jesus being born but all four talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. We can read into that whatever we want, but um, I think it's clear that the, that the issue of the resurrection is of the, like, m the highest importance in the, in the gospel story. So you can read these accounts in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, or, and, in all, and also in John 20 and 21. Um, we see in these stories that Jesus was raised from the dead physically, bodily. So let me just show you where, that, where it teaches that in Luke 24, 36 to 39. Um, <clears throat> here we go. Um, one more page, sorry. There we go. 
So the disciples are up in the uh, upper room or somewhere, I guess. I don't know if they're in the upper room still, but they're not with Jesus. And it says, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. That word spirit could be translated as ghost. Okay, so they think they're seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they disbelieved for joy, that's an interesting phrase, they disbelieved for joy uh, and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So he's eating this fish in front of them. I've always wondered why in the world did, did, did Jesus eat a fish in front of his disciples? And the, the children's storybook Bible that I read, read to my kids when they were really little, the Jesus storybook Bible, talks about this, this story. And, and they paraphrase this story as Jesus eats the fish, he wipes his mouth and says, see, could a ghost do that? Yeah. And I think that's exactly what's happening. He's showing them he's not a ghost. He's a human. He, he's alive. He's bodily, physically raised from the dead. He's eating fish in front of them. He's got his hands and his feet are still scarred from the crucifixion. He has flesh and bones. They're, he's ma- they're making this huge emphasis in the Gospels of Jesus Christ having physically raised from the dead. His body was crucified and in the tomb for um, you know, day and a half or so. But on the third day, that's what so we say, the third day he rose. He wasn't in the tomb for three whole days, but he rose on the third day. Um, so he rose on Sunday. He was, he was buried on Friday. So on the third day he rose. And he rose physically and bodily. And what the Bible teaches us about this is that Christianity as a, as a system of belief rises and falls on this reality. It rises and falls on whether Jesus was raised from the dead or, or not. And I don't know that there's any passage that theologically wa- walks us through this as well as 1 Corinthians 15. So let's just take a few minutes here to, to talk about this passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the primary passage of, of the resurrection uh, in, in terms of its implications for our lives. The gospels, all four of them record the event. And then the apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit tells us why it matters. So we're going to look at some several sections here. Um, we'll look at verse one to nine, then we'll skip down to verse 14, and then we'll look at 20 and 21. We'll just kind of do a little bit of a uh, hop and skip through this. Um, but, but look at what the apostle Paul writes. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, that's, that's crucial, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, of course, Paul's saying that as he's writing, not as we're reading, okay? They're not still alive now, but they were still alive when Paul was writing these words. Although some have fallen asleep, so some have died of those 500. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. All right, we'll stop there in this section. So here Paul walks us through the clear evidence of the resurrection that it actually happened uh, is, is what he's, he hasn't even quite gotten to the, the significance of it. He, he has touched on it, but he'll hone in on the significance further in the chapter. But he's, he's primarily recounting what we are to believe. He, he delivered to us as of first importance what he received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the scriptures told us this. They, Christ fulfills it. And then not only did he die and was buried and rose, but then he, after his resurrection, appeared. And he lists out all these people that he appeared to. He appeared to Peter and then to the other 12 apostles and then to 500 people at one time. So notice what he's doing. Paul's trying to help us understand this actually happened. And there are a lot of witnesses to this. Like you can pretend, I mean, okay. So they always talk about how hard it is to pull off a conspiracy to do something. Right? Conspiracy in the sense that people are trying to do something wrong. Okay. And they always talk about how hard it is to do a conspiracy and pull it off and be and not get caught uh, if there's more than just like two or three people involved. Like those two or three people might be able to keep it under lock and key and get away with it. But as it, as it expands out and more and more people are involved, the harder it is to keep that, that um, locked up. There's too, many, there's too many moving parts at that point, right? There's too many people involved. You know, people put the feds or whatever will put the squeeze on one guy and he'll... he'll Rat everybody out, right? That's just what's going to happen. Uh, and so, so what Paul's making the point of is this is not just make, made up by a few guys in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. This was something that Jesus actually showed up to not just his buddies, but also to 500 people at one time. And Paul says, 
Most of those people are still alive. He's basically telling the Corinthians, if you don't believe this, go find the people. They're out there. They're still alive. Now, we don't have that luxury today. We take the word of God as it is and we trust it and believe it, right? But this is, we got to recognize this is what's happening. Paul's saying, man, this was not, this was not a secret that Jesus was raised from the dead. This was obvious in front of people all over the place. People knew it happened. He appeared to 500 then he appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And then he also, Paul's bringing it down personally. He's saying, I also saw Jesus. He appeared to me. And, and so he's saying from his, from his own personal experience with Christ, he saw him alive. So all of that is uh, the, essentially the, the explanation of the importance, but the implications are, are yet to come. So look at verse 14. Uh, verse 14 says this, and if Christ has not been raised, all right, so let's, let's do a hypothetical thought experiment. What if Christ had not been raised? Then our preaching is in vain, our preaching is meaningless, because they're preaching the resurrection, and your faith is in vain. Your faith is meaningless if Christ has not been raised. But that's not the case, right? He, he says um, that we would be found misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And if he didn't raise Christ uh, and he's dead and they're not, he's not raised, then basically he's making the point that the whole All of Christianity rises and falls on this reality. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So that's interesting because it's not just, okay, your faith is futile and there's no implications after that. No, he actually says, your faith is meaningless if Christ hasn't been raised and also you're going to go to hell too. So have fun with that. That's what he's saying. Like that's the point he's making. And it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. He's, he's saying this very bluntly. So, uh, so your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning they've gone to hell. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, most to be pitied. He's saying that the resurrection is our eternal hope for life after this life. And, he's, and Paul's saying, listen, if you guys just think that Christ is helpful for you here and now, it's pretty pathetic. It's pretty sad. Because what Christ is is help now, but he's also an eternal hope for us forever. So verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he kind of walks us through this thought experiment of, well, what happens if Christ isn't raised? Here, well, he walks us through all that. And then at the end of it, he says, but you know, he has actually been raised from the dead. So don't, don't freak out. Don't freak out. It's okay. Um, verse 21 or 20 and 21, it says, for as an Adam, we actually looked at this two weeks ago, as an Adam, all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So in Adam, as we stand in Adam and under his sin and his curse, we die. But because Christ was the second Adam, the true Adam, the fulfillment of Adam, in him, in Jesus, we are made alive. 
because Christ is made alive and we're united with him. Um, Ephesians chapter two walks us through this too as well, as well. So let's quickly just look at that and then we'll, I know we didn't spend a lot of time in great detail here, but we'll, I'll take some questions if you have any after we look at Ephesians 2. But I think this is a really helpful passage. Um, so it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's simply saying we're dead in sin if we don't have Jesus. Okay, we're, we're dead sinners. But, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So we'll stop there because we're going to get to the, the second half of this passage in the uh, ascension aspect. But we're seeing this, right? We're dead sinners that God sets his love on to make us alive spiritually to God. And we are actually raised up with Christ. We're raised up with Christ. His resurrection is our resurrection as we're united to him by faith. That's great news. So any questions about the resurrection? I know we didn't walk through like all the evidences for it. I know we didn't do a whole deep dive, but is there anything you guys have questions on that I can address? And well, we've got a little bit of time left here. So let's, let's talk through the ascension of Christ. Um, so we, we often hone in, at least in our kind of circle of theological stuff, on the uh, death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And then we acknowledge, yes, he was obviously raised into heaven. He was ascended into heaven. Um, but what is the significance of the doctrine of the ascension? It's actually very important. Um, so I, and maybe some of you, this will be old news because maybe you, you have, have understanding of this. But uh, after Jesus' resurrection, he was on earth for about 40 days. And uh, then he was uh, lifted up into heaven. That's what the Bible says. He was lifted up into heaven. This, this story is found in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Um, the, he's, uh, he's with his disciples some, some believe he was giving his great commission at that moment. At the end of it, he's raised up, he's lifted up into heaven. And uh, all, the, all the apostles are looking up at the sky, watching him go. And they're just like, he, he eventually gets behind a cloud. He, they can't see him anymore. And a couple of angels show up and say to, say to them, why are you staring up at the sky? Like, get to work, basically, is, is the point. He's going to come back just as he left. And we'll talk about the return of Christ in a future session. But um, the ascension of Christ is just talking about that moment. But what is the significance of that moment? Well, at his ascension, Christ received the fullness of his glory. So when you talk about his life on earth, 
there's basically two theological categories for Jesus. There is the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. By humiliation, we don't mean like, oh, he was humiliated like he was mocked or anything. We're talking about him putting on humility in, in the form of manhood, uh, God becoming man, one, one person, fully God, fully man. We talked through that last week. Um, and so you, you have Christ in that state of humiliation after he is raised and then ascended into heaven, he enters into his exaltation. So, so Christ receives glory at his ascension that he had not previously experienced in his uh, human form. So there's a few passages here we can, we can look at. We got Acts 2, verse 33. Uh, this is in the sermon that Peter preaches, I believe, uh, at Pentecost. Um, it says this, that, uh, well, we'll start in verse 32 just to get the full thought. This Jesus God raised up, and, and of that we are all witnesses. So Jesus is killed. He's raised up by God. They're witnesses. Being, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter acknowledges that Christ was crucified, was raised, but now that he's seated at the right hand of God in the ascension, he is exalted. He is given this position of glory at Christ's right hand. Uh, you have Philippians 2.9 as well. Um, here, the Apostle Paul's writing this and says, Therefore, after speaking about his death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is exalted after his crucifixion, his resurrection, he's raised and then sent back into heaven at the right hand of God to be exalted. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, uh, we'll read that one real quick and then we'll go on to the next um, the next implication here. Uh, it says this, that um, he was manifested in the flesh, so he became a man, vindicated by the Spirit. We just preached through this not that long ago, so we were talking about this being a reference to the resurrection seen by the angels at his resurrection as they announced that, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. So Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. Those are the states of Christ. That's what the theologians refer to it as. So the, the ascension shows his glory. We've already seen this referenced, but Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So Christ, what that means is that Christ has received the position of authority, right? That that's, he has a, the authority of God the Father because he is God. There's no, we know that he's one God in three persons, right? Each person is fully God. We walked through all that uh, uh, several weeks back. 
But Christ in his unique role within the Trinity um, is seated, it says, at the right hand of the Father. That, that symbolizes this idea of sitting at the right hand of a king, symbolizes your authority and your, and your position within that kingdom. So it's highlighting the authority of Christ in his ascension. The, the doctrine of the ascension also has significance for our lives. There are things about this moment of Jesus being now raised in glory in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This actually does have implications for us. Here's the here's first one. We are united with Christ in every aspect of his work of redemption. Because Christ is alive and is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, we have been united with him through faith in every aspect of his work. So we're united in his death. We're united in his perfect life. We're united in his resurrection. We're united in his ascension. Now, I, I reference here 1 Thessalonians 4.17, which um, I'll read. I actually, just because I turned straight there, so I might as well read it. But then we're going to go over to back to Ephesians 2. Um, but 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive, we're talking about at the return of Christ again, we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Christ at his return from glory in heaven, coming back to get his people at the end of time, we will always be with him, we will be caught up with him, and we will be united to him forever. Now, we see that not just at the end, at the close of human history, but we see it even spiritually now that we are united to Christ in all of these aspects. That's where Ephesians 2 is getting at. We, we stopped halfway through that section. We're, we're told that we have been raised up with him. But then look at the next phrase. This is verse 6. And seated us. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are united to Christ in the whole work of redemption from his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we are, as Paul says in this passage, somehow, you know, somehow, unexplainably, spiritually, and someday bodily, we are seated at the right hand of God with him. We are seated with him. If he is seated at the right hand of God and we are with him, we're seated at the right hand of God. We're united to Jesus in all of these things. We, we see as well that Jesus' ascension gives us assurance that our final home will be in heaven with him. Jesus' ascension gives us assurance. In John 14, 2 to 3, he t he's telling his disciples before his death that he is going to go and make a place for them prepare a home for them, right? And so he's trying to comfort them. And he says, well, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. In the meantime, you're going to have the comforter with you here on earth, but I'm going to go. And he's referring to his ascension back into heaven. And he, what he says in that is he's going to go and he's going to prepare a place for you. He's working through that. He's working on that. And he's preparing a place for our final home. 
we also see that we share now in part in Christ's authority over the universe. So see here, I wrote that, that reference down. But we will later share in it more fully. So that's Ephesians 2.6, which we, we read already. So just honing in on that. But I actually have one more I'm going to add. I don't have it in, this, in these notes. But um, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we, we see another implication of the ascension of Christ. And that is that we actually have uh, a Savior who is able to help us in all of our weakness. If you look at Hebrews 4, verse uh, 14 uh, through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, is that a reference to him passing through the heavens on his way down or on his way up or both? I think it's both. Okay, but he passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Why? For or because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, so there he's talking about the humiliation, the state of humility of Christ, being tempted as we are, resisting sin. He can understand you. He can help you. He, can, he, he knows what you're going through because he's been through it too. But then here's the final implication of this in this passage. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he is sitting on the throne of grace. And we can draw near to that throne of grace because Jesus is alive, he's in heaven, he's interceding for us, he's caring for us, he's there to help us in our weaknesses and we get to just draw near to him. This, this, this God-man who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he understands it all, he lived it all as we are, but he never succumbed to sin like we do. So we can with confidence draw near to him at his throne of grace to what? Receive mercy and help in time of need. That is a massively important um, aspect of the ascension of Christ, that we have a God in heaven literally interceding for us and working for our good to help us as we walk through this life. That's massively important. So those are the implications of Christ's ascension. Um, Any questions quickly on that and We'll leave it at that. That's a good word to end on here. Um, next week, we're going to wrap up um, the, the last small section of the, the work of Christ and talk about the offices of Christ. Um, so this we just didn't quite have the time to cover. I'm trying to make this a little shorter than two hours because it gets to be a lot. So we'll tack on the last little bit, and then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit for the majority of the time, um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and, and the third person of the Godhead And so looking forward to that next week. And um, in the meantime, I'll pray for us and you guys will be dismissed. Father, thank you for the reminder um, that we've seen today of our need for an atoning Savior and that you have provided that atonement for us 
in the person of Jesus Christ. We're no longer bound by sacrificial system and by the weight of our own burdens, but we actually get to just draw near to you and receive mercy and grace because of the finished work of Christ. We pray that you would help us to rest in that tonight. Help us to know that there is nothing that we have to prove and no one to impress because we are fully and completely accepted and received and forgiven and loved by you. So I pray that you would help us to rest in those things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.